We've been talking about uh, miracles and uh, specifically the seven miracles found in the, in the Gospel of John. Again, John is concerned uh, not so much to uh, uh, a particular geographic audience that he's writing to, but he is writing uh, for a purpose. He is writing to demonstrate uh, the divine nature of God while also highlighting his humanity, the dual nature of Jesus Christ. So everything that he puts within his gospel uh, ha- is heading towards that purpose. Again, it's not just a chronological uh, biography of Jesus and his works, but he's writing for a different purpose other than that. And so he doesn't write down every miracle that Jesus did, but he contains seven miracles, and we're looking at those because they have a purpose uh, for revealing something about Jesus Christ, an aspect towards us. Uh, that we need about his personality, about his character, and also about his power. And I also feel it's important uh, as we talk about miracles, because, just a minute, I feel off-center. I was by about four inches. Now it's all good. All right. All right. I feel good. It's a miracle. I also feel it's important for us to talk about miracles because... I want to see miracles happen. Amen? Talking about this at the start of the year, and I believe that God wants to do miracles in our lives. I believe that God wants to do greater and greater things in our lives. And when I say that, I mean that in two different ways. And we've, we've briefly discussed this uh, in past weeks, but I believe that God wants to do uh, mighty things in this community. I believe that He wants to do mighty things in your life, impossible things. Amen? I, want, I believe he wants to do great things. So I want to see more miracles in that regard. Like I'm not seeing enough, I want to see more. But then also, I want to see more miracles in this regard that sometimes I think we uh, disregard or miss many miracles that are taking place. So I want to see the miracles as well. I want to recognize what God is doing. Because I don't want to say, well, God's just not moving because I don't think that's true. Because I look around and I see people that have experienced miracles in your lives. And I know God is doing miracles. So I'm not saying, well, God's not doing anything. We need to see God do something. No, I want to see him do more. But I also, within my own uh, life, my spiritual eyes, I want those open to see uh, what God is already doing. Because we talked about the way to steward faith. Is, is, is that we increase that faith, we, we believe God, and then He increases our We keep building on our faith. So I want to see what God is doing because I believe it would increase my faith and I could see greater things done if I would just simply see what God is already doing. Anyway, but I want to see miracles. And uh, we're going to talk about the second miracle found in the Gospel of John today. And last week we talked about the winemaker turning water into wine. And this week we're going to be talking about the waymaker. The Waymaker, Jesus Christ as the Waymaker. And we find uh, the second miracle is in John chapter 4, uh, the latter part, verses 46 through 54, and we're going to read uh, this miracle that Jesus performs. It says, So Jesus came again into Cana of Galilee, where he made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus was come out of Judea into Galilee, he went unto him and besought him that he would come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Then said Jesus unto him, Except ye see signs and wonders, ye will not believe. The noble man saith unto him, Sir, come down ere my child die. Jesus saith unto him, Go thy way, 
thy son liveth. And the man believed the word that Jesus had spoken unto him, and he went his way. And as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Thy son liveth. Then inquired he of them the hour when he began to amend. And they said unto him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in which Jesus said unto him, Thy son liveth, and himself believed in his whole house. This is again the second miracle that Jesus did when he was come out of Judea into Galilee. Now, uh, we, we find various points in this story. Uh, this is, uh, the last verse tells us this is the second miracle that Jesus did. Uh, this is the second miracle that John is telling us about the specifics of it. And so we're going to look at this in, in just a, a few different areas. And the first phrase we'll look at, so Jesus came again into Cana of Galilee, as verse 46 starts. We find that Jesus has returned to Cana. Again, and this verse tells us that this is the site of his first public miracle where he turned water into wine last week. This is him returning to the same place. This is just two, two chapters later. Now, quite a lot has happened. Remember, John's not writing chronologically. He's not writing step by step. But quite a lot has happened from the first visit to Cana to the second visit of Cana. Jesus left Cana, the marriage at Cana, turning water into wine. He then went to Jerusalem, where it was then that he cleansed the temple. He went in and knocked everything over and said this, uh, this should be called a house of prayer. That took place. And then we find that he received Nicodemus at night. The ruler of the temple came, and we have that discussion. Uh, how can a man be born again? All of that takes place. He's been baptized by John. He's taken a detour through Samaria, where he finds a woman sitting, or a woman at a well that he asks for water. And we have that whole encounter with the lady at the well, the Samaritan lady at the well. He has been, uh, during this time, he's been accepted as a teacher. Nicodemus calls him teacher. He's been accepted as that. John tells us that he performed many other miracles, although we don't know uh, from John's gospel exactly what he's talking about. We know that many had decided in, the, in this time span between the two visits to Canaan, many had decided to follow him because of the miracles. They'd seen the signs and they decide, man, this guy's got something going on. And we see that he's already laid out a prophetic plan of salvation in this time frame as well to Nicodemus. There is no Holy Ghost being poured out at this moment, yet he tells Nicodemus, you must be born of the water and of the Spirit. So we have a prophetic plan of salvation that's been laid out. He's also shown his disciples after the encounter with the Samaritan lady. We have the famous phrase, the, the fields are white and ready to be harvested. So he's, he's pointed out the harvest field to his disciples and that there's a harvest that can be found in every location, even in Samaria. And so all of this has taken place in these two chapters. And we find that there's, there, there's all of these things uh, uh, happening there's a lot of uh, symbolism that's taken place that, that we can gather from John and how he summarizes these two chapters. We find that, that it's, it's kind of bookended by the two visits to Cana, chapters 2 through 4, and so it's kind of this little story within a story. And we find that it starts out, the story starts out with a marriage feast. And then we find that Jesus speaks of salvation to a Jewish ruler. And then he speaks of salvation to a Samaritan woman. And then we find in this story here that he speaks of, of salvation and believing to a Gentile ruler. And so this signifies, John is telling us, that uh, salvation is open to all. 
It starts out with the wedding feast, and the wedding is open to all. Whether you are Jew, Samaritan, or Gentile, it's open to all. And, 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 and now we find him in this chapter returning to the site of his first miracle. These, these uh, two miracles have many similarities, as well as some differences that are stark contrasts. And they're, they're connected in this way. The similarities is that uh, it can be said, uh, again, that these two uh, miracles at Cana bookend a section of what John is trying to say. They both occur on the third day. It was the third day of the feast, and it appears to be the third day that Jesus is at Cana. They both contain some form of rebuke. We find in the first uh, miracle, the water into wine. Remember, Jesus says, woman. How many, has anyone tried that this week, saying that to your wife? Yeah, it doesn't work out too good. Even if you say, I'm just being Christ-like, you know. But they both contain some form of rebuke. And, and, and it's interesting in both, in that in both of the miracles, the servants are the main witnesses to the actual miracle. The only people who actually uh, knew that what was being drunk was water out of foot-washing pots were the servants. And the only people who knew and saw the healing take place in this here are the servants. Now, we could go off probably on that a little bit, but we're not going to. But it also, it, it kind of bookends this, the two miracles. They also highlight, uh, give us the contrast of the highs and lows of life. Now, you may have a different opinion. Uh, I got myself in trouble a little bit last week, so I'll try and, and fix that this week. I know the best day of my life was the wedding day. The highs of life. <laughs> but then you have the contrast of what would probably be considered one of the worst days of your life as your child is facing death. You have two miracles on two opposite ends of the spectrum of life. One is at one of uh, life's happiest moments. The other is at one of life's worst moments. The first thing that we can gather from this story, again looking at that phrase, so Jesus came again into Cana of Galilee is the simple fact that Jesus is returning to the point of a previous miracle, and that fact is being highlighted. Now, whether Jesus needed this or not, I believe it's relevant to you and I. And this fact here that is relevant to you and I. It's all right to return to points of faith in your life to strengthen yourself. Jesus isn't I don't know if Jesus needed his faith strengthened, but in this time as well, he's, he's mentioned the phrase, it's hard for a prophet to find honor in his own country. And he's tried to do things, and he's been rejected by the people that he knows. And he goes back to Canaan, and this is the next uh, miracle that John presents to us. But I want to say it's all right to return to points of faith in your life, miracles in the past to strengthen yourself for today. We find that David encouraged himself before Saul. As he came, Saul said, how in the world can you face the battle in front of you? And what did David do? He believed God for now, but he also reached into the past and said, here's why I know I can face the challenge today. It's because in years past, I faced a bear. And in years past, I faced a lion. And God brought me through that, so I know God will bring me through this. It's all right to go back into the past and reach into your own testimony and say, you know what? I remember. I remember the last miracle at Cana. I remember the last time when he turned water into wine. And I know God can do it again now. We find Asaph 
he pens a psalm in Psalms chapter 77, and he says these verses. He's talking, uh, the whole chapter is pertinent to what we're saying, but I'm just cutting this little bit out in the middle. And it says, will the Lord cast off forever? Will he be favorable no more? Is his mercy clean gone forever? Now that's really gone if it's clean gone. Doth his promise fail forever? Hath God forgotten to be gracious? Hath he in anger shut up his tender mercies? And then it says Selah. That means think about it for just a minute. Now I want, and there's stuff he says before this. I want you to think about that for a minute. Because there's moments in life where we get to this point. Now, if, if you're honest, there's moments when you've thought these thoughts. Now, remember, I, I love reading the Psalms because uh, sometimes I think as much as we, we, we're not hypocrites and we're authentic and we're all this stuff. No, you're not authentic like some of the psalmists. He's talking to God and said, why have you left me? Are you going to, if you cast me off forever? Now, now we feel blasphemous, but I, I believe there's a right way to approach God. And he's saying this, Lord, have you, have you just forgotten about me? Where are you at? Am I never going to feel your favor anymore? In fact, has your mercy just gone away? Has your mercy left? Are your promises failed? Are they done? Can I just quit on those? Have you forgotten to even be gracious to me? And there's moments in our life when we feel that way. And what he does is he goes back to moments in his life. He says, and I said this, this is my infirmity, but I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High God. That, rem- that means the right hand is the hand of power. So I'll rem- right now, right now in my life, man, I don't know where God is, but here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to reach into the, I'm going to go to the first visit to Cana. I'm going to reach into the past and I'm going to remember when God did do something in my life. He says, I'll remember the works of the Lord. I'll remember the wonders of old. I will meditate on thy work and talk of thy doings. He said, I'm going to reach into the past and I'm going to let my own testimony strengthen myself. You see, that's why your testimony is important. It's not just to get up at testimony service and encourage somebody else. No, your testimony can strengthen yourself. It's all right to go back to the first miracle at Cana to gain strength before you face what's happening right now in Cana. Sometimes we just need, and we heard about the old path of prayer last week, sometimes we just need to walk the old path of God's faithfulness. And just remember, even though it doesn't seem like He's faithful now, even though it doesn't seem like He's providing right now, even though sickness is overwhelming my life right now, I know that He's done it before, and so I'm going to gain strength for my present because of what He's done before. Sometimes we just need to remember the first miracle at Cana. We find then it says, uh, speaking of this nobleman, it says, When he had heard that Jesus was come out of Judea into Galilee, he went unto him and besought him that he would come down and heal his son. Here we get into the crux of the miracle. Scripture tells us of this nobleman or officer who lived in Capernaum. Now there's a speculation that this could have been a wealthy Jewish noble, Possibly a tax collector, although he probably would not have been described as a nobleman if this was true. But most feel, or many feel, that this was an official in the government of Herod. Whether he was Roman or Jewish or, or his exact uh, 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 heritage, but many feel that he was a, uh, part of the Roman government there, and that's why he's called a nobleman. We do know, because he was called a nobleman though, that he was someone who could afford and retain the best. So we can assume at this point, if his child is at the point of death, that this is a man who has probably already tried everything that he could do. 
He's probably called every doctor. He's probably called every... every well, he didn't call anyone. Sorry. <laughs> he, he got the tin cans out. He probably had tried everything that he knew to get his child better. And yet here he is. He, he's probably spared no expense, and, and here he is. Nothing has worked. His, his child is, is dangerously ill on the point of death. And he had heard about this healer traveling around. He, this was not the first time because he, there's a reputation, there's a reason that he goes to Jesus. He's heard what this guy has done. And he's heard that there's this guy called Jesus traveling around. He's heard of some of the miracles. In fact, he's not too far from Capernaum. He's probably heard about the water into wine story. And he decides when he hears Jesus return to Cana, he says, I've I've tried everything else. I'm just going to go see this guy that's going around doing miracles. I'm going to try Jesus. Now, uh, and this is kind of funny, I think that these would kind of be fixed points, Capernaum and Cana, but I, I, Capernaum and Cana were in the region from 15 to 25 miles apart, so we'll call it 20. I don't know how it can be that big of a difference, but uh, we'll say it was roughly 20 miles apart. And he was a nobleman, so he probably didn't walk the whole way. Uh, he probably had some other form of transportation, but this was still a decent trip in those times, 20 miles Added to that, Capernaum sat in the valley while Cana sat at the top of the valley. So it was an uphill trip to go see Jesus. 20 miles uphill both ways to go see Jesus. So what it comes down to, even though he may have had some form of transportation, knowing that 20 miles was still a fair distance, we come to the conclusion that this nobleman really wanted to see Jesus. He had to make a 20-mile uphill trip if he wanted to see Jesus. And it's, I think it's worth us noting that this man had to put some effort into seeing Jesus. And I think that we can gather from this story the idea, and we mentioned it briefly last week, that I might have to put something forward if I want to see a miracle happen. Now, we know that this is a partnership between us and God, that God can do anything that He wants, but He chooses to partner with mankind. And so for me, just to sit back and say, Jesus, do it all, He probably won't, because He's called us into a partnership. While He can, He chooses not to, because He chooses to join with us. And so in understanding that I cannot perform the supernatural on my own, I must have God perform the supernatural Most miracles do involve some form of human involvement or effort. And this story is no different. It involved a man putting forth the effort to travel 20 miles uphill to see his miracle happen. Now understand, last week we talked about Mary who came to Jesus and said, they're out of wine, you need to do something about it. And Jesus said, woman, it's not my time, I'm not doing it. And she turned to the servants and said, do what he tells you and walked off. And the point was, leaving it in his hands. She didn't offer a solution. She, didn't offer, she just said, just do what he says. This guy's a little bit different. We're talking about effort, doing something. So we're not going from one end of the spectrum to the other. We're going to find a balance in the middle. Understand that my effort does not make a miracle happen. If I want to see a loved one saved... My witnessing will not save them no matter how much I do it because I can't save anyone. 
I can't do enough things to heal someone, to deliver someone. I can't counsel someone enough to see a transformation in their life. I can't do it. Okay, so I understand that my, my effort does not make it happen. But understand this too. My lack of effort can keep it from happening. Now that's, that, that's the fine line you got to walk. My effort doesn't make it happen, but my lack of effort can keep it from happening. One author, Dallas Willard, said, Grace is not opposed to effort. Okay, when I come to him, first of all, there's something I got to do. I got to come to him. I have to believe. I have to believe that he is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. There's a part that I have to play in the salvation process. So grace is not opposed to effort. What grace is opposed to is earning. I can earn a miracle. If I do enough of this, this will happen. Now, now we all know that. Grace is undeserved favor. <laughs> I won't ask you to raise your hand, but how many of you have uh, maybe given in an offering or a special offering and thought, I'm going to give this and good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over? I'm going to get a blessing because I give. Now, whether you say I'm going to give because I'm going to get a blessing, you give and you put... Sometimes we expect a little bit back for what we do. That's where it gets dangerous because we expect something, that we have done something so we earn it back. If, if I pray hard enough, I'll get it. My effort doesn't make it happen. But me not praying about it may make it not happen. You understand that? Earning is an attitude, is what Dallas Willard said. Earning is an attitude. It ends up, you know what happens with that? You'll find at the end of that road, you'll find the bitter person, is what you'll find at the end of earning. Because they'll start feeling like they deserve something because of what they've done. Now, we understand salvation, I did nothing, and Jesus died on a cross for me. So I understand that. I undeserve favor. I understand all that. But what about when I'm faithful, when I pray, when I give, when I fast, and I don't get it? What do I do? What do I do? I start pulling out the things I've done and say, Lord, look what I've done. And on some level, we begin to say, Lord, I deserve because I've done. Okay? Grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. Earning is an attitude. Effort is an action. So it's important for me to understand that I must put forth some effort. But just because I've put forth some effort doesn't mean that God owes me anything. God does not owe me a miracle. However, I can't just sit there and say I'm not going to do anything. There has to be some effort. So the question we get from this story, because we see what this man does, is how much am I willing to give for my miracle? How much am I willing to sacrifice for my miracle? What am I willing to do to see a miracle happen in my life? How much am I willing to pray? How much am I willing to fast, to sacrifice, to give? The question becomes, am I willing to walk to Cana for my miracle? Now, if I get to Cana and he doesn't do anything, I can't pull out my trip to Cana as a trump card and say, I'll walk uphill for you, Lord. But am I willing to walk uphill for my miracle? You see, and that's where it becomes difficult. You know, uh, there's that, how many ever read that verse, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, and thought, well, that's a good verse. What does that mean? 
Maybe you just read it and didn't want to think about it. It's not talking about the new birth. It's not talking about if you, if you can make an origami swan, then you believe that that's what it takes to be saved, and you've worked out your own salvation. Now I'm saved because I've got an origami swan. How many of you can make an origami swan? Anyone? One person. There's only one saved person in this place. That's... <laughs> That's not what it means. It doesn't mean you can work out your own salvation. Whatever you think salvation is, that's what it means. No, it starts coming in these areas where I have to, I can't just take a a pat answer. I can't just be spoon-fed the answer. I've got to work some things out of my life. Where is the line between I'm trying to earn this or I'm just trying to put forth effort? That's where me and God start to have communication. But this shows us that I have to put forth some effort if I want to see. So, so I, it doesn't mean that, that well, I'm just, I believe God's going to save my loved ones. No, I might have to talk to him about the Lord every so often. I might have to pray every so often for him. I might have to do, I might, if I want healed, I might have to step out and come forward for prayer. God can do anything, anywhere, at any time. But there is something to be said for my step. Now, and and like I said, God God could fill anyone with the Holy Ghost anywhere. And there is nothing sanctified about the free throw line. Nothing. Okay? But I believe there is something for feeling the presence and power of God and you taking a step. Physically. Physically. God can, fill, God can do a miracle while you're sitting right there. He can do it while you're, while, while you're, amen, while you're doing that. He can, he can do it. Okay? But there's something to be said for you doing something. Okay? And how many times have I just said, well, Lord, Lord, if you want to do it. Man, we got coats and reserve signs. These people really want to sit here. Lord, if you want it to happen, let it happen. And we raise our hands in the receiving position and that's all we do. No, you might have to get up and it might cause you some embarrassment. It might, I don't want to, no. You might have to do something. Are you willing to walk to Cana for your miracle? How much does it matter to you? This miracle also shows us that uh, geography does not limit God. Now you know that. You understand that. But this was very important in these times because the temple was the center of Jewish worship. And the temple signified the dwelling place of God. If you've been at prayer uh, this past week, there's been, uh, Brother Gene's been talking about uh, going to the tabernacle. And and we, we got to the Holy of Holies. And that's where the Ark of the Covenant was. And that signified the dwelling place of God. And they took that Ark when they went into battle. Why? Because they wanted God to go with them. And when the Ark wasn't there, they're like, what are we going to do? Where's God? If you, if you read um, uh, Ezekiel, he has the vision of, of the, uh, it's the freaky visions where he ate too much pizza and there's, there's chariots and wheels and cherubims. And, but the significance of that is that God is moving. The, the, the people didn't see that God could move. They thought God was stationary, contained in a box, contained in a location. And unless that box went with them, God couldn't go with them. And still, even in this day, the temple was the place to go worship God. It signified the dwelling place of God. This demonstrated that the location of Jesus, just as the location of the temple, were not important. God could move anywhere because He chooses to. Okay? 
Now, while the physical location, we know that we do not have to come to this building for for something to happen. We understand that there is nothing uh, of itself that makes this uh, building hallowed. That if we left here and someone else bought it, that doesn't mean that we've left God and God's still here. We understand that, okay? However, perhaps it's not the location maybe we need to look at. Perhaps we have become attached less to a location and more to an atmosphere. We have have hallowed an atmosphere. We have relegated His power to an atmosphere. And you've heard me say it plenty, so if you think I don't think church is important, then you're wrong. I know that something happens when we gather together. You need to come to church because you sitting at home is just not the same as being here. I understand that. But on the other hand, God can move anywhere at any time. And I don't have to have the church with me for God to do something. So while we understand that I don't have to pick up this building for something to happen, sometimes we feel like God can't do anything because I don't have this atmosphere there. It's not the same thing. But God is not relegated by that at all in our lives. How many of us still have the mindset, if I could just get them to church... Can God move anywhere? Now, is there something special that happens here? Absolutely. But you know what? God doesn't need them to get to church for Him to move. But sometimes we become attached to that. And again, I understand the dynamic, but but we don't come to just the temple to feel Him, but neither do we have to have the right setting for God to move. And I know we get this in theory, but yet our practice still demonstrates that many times we feel otherwise. We hear of a situation or someone approaches us with something, and I want you to pray, and automatically we think, if I could get them to church, if if I could get them there on Sunday, or who could I call, if the pastor could just talk to them, if I could get someone just to talk to them. That's, we need all that stuff. That's biblical. Where can I take them to get some counseling? No, God can move at any point, at any time, and He can do it through you as well. You can be part of a miracle at any point and at any time. And I think whether we acknowledge it or not, we're controlled by the geography more than we realize. We think, man, if I could just get that person up there at prayer time uh, for healing and I get the ministry staff to lay their hands on them, God will do something. Well, He may do something and they need to come to church, but God can do something anytime, anywhere. And I think this story leads us to understand that God can do that. God can move anywhere through anyone and He can move past every limitation that we think there may be. Man. How many more pages I got here? Oh, good. That's not my page. That's just the service schedule. Got worried there for a minute. I got a few more things to say. We should also take note that he took a different way than the man brought and that the man expected. This is where we come to. Jesus is a way maker. Jesus makes his own way. Now, sometimes I don't think Jesus is awful smart because he doesn't do it my way. And of course, my way is the, the best way. It's the most logical way. And this, this was an easy thing, not easy, but the man had done all the hard work. This was a 40-mile return trip, and the man did the hardest part. He did the half that was all uphill. All Jesus had to do was walk downhill. That's it. You ever tried to walk, you know, he's walking fast, you know, going downhill? And it was a pretty steep incline. It was a 5% incline. Or I guess if he's going down, it wouldn't be an incline. It was at a decline. 
All Jesus had to do was a downhill trip. And yet, the, and so the guy's thinking, well, I've done the hard part. All Jesus has to do is do the easy part and come down there. And I know he can heal, so there it is. But Jesus makes a way where there appears to be no way. The guy's never thought about the airwaves. The guy's never thought about the word of God. He's never thought that there's something that can move faster than the speed of light. He's just thinking, well, it's just a downhill trip now. I don't know if he's really thinking that. I'll just say he was. The man was thinking of a physical journey, and Jesus was thinking of making a way through the atmosphere. So while this guy didn't necessarily come and present what Jesus needed to do, there was an expected thing that was supposed to happen. Now, this is where we get that verse, he can do exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask or even think. This guy came asking, and he came thinking of how Jesus was going to do something, and Jesus exceeded his thoughts and his requests in a way that the guy could never have even imagined before. As full of faith as we can be sometimes, we still think we have it figured out and how God will do it. We still think, well, it's just a downhill trip now. But God is saying, you know what? You're still placing limitations on me. There are still things that you can't even imagine. I want God to exceed my expectations. Think about what that means. Just think about, well, it just blows your mind. You can't think about it. He says it, he doesn't place a limitation on what you can ask. He doesn't place a limitation on what you can think. So I want you to think about every person that you've been praying for to be saved. He can do exceedingly above, above all that. Th think about what people have said about revival for this church and, and how many people... You can, you can think as big as you want until you start thinking, well, that's a little... That's a little bit crazy. And he can do exceedingly abundantly above that. I wonder what would happen if we would approach him with faith and then just allow him to do whatever he wants to do. We still come with our expectations. Why? Because we're human. And you know what? We're bound by a lot of laws. And a lot of those laws were put in place by God. And he's the only one that can break them. But we need to realize that he does have the power to break any law that he's put in place. Except you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. This miracle also shows us that De Jesus, and we just mentioned, he doesn't operate how you think he should. A little bit different tack here. Both with the actual healing of the man's son. So he spoke instead of going. And also for the crowd that was there as well. Jesus is speaking this phrase to the man and to the crowd. Because the reason the crowd is there is because he's done some miracles and they followed him. They're following him for a reason. John tells us he's done many other miracles and they're following him because of the miracles. The crowd was ready to, see, to follow Jesus. They were ready to see another miracle happen. They were ready. Oh, they're excited. Oh, look, this guy's son needs healed. Jesus is getting ready to do something. What's he going to do? They, they'd seen plenty and here they are clamoring around Jesus in hopes of seeing another miracle. And Jesus admonishes both the man... And he admonishes the crowd for this. He states that their belief in him is not based in him, but on what he does. So I, I'm going to skip by some of that. 
But he gives them something other than a sign. He says, except you have a sign, you won't believe. Wonders and signs, you're not going to believe. He gives them something other than a sign, though. He doesn't physically heal by going and putting his hands on. The crowd never sees the boy healed. So the crowd never has a sign. The man, when he leaves, has not seen his boy healed. He leaves with no sign. He leaves with no wonder. At the end of this encounter here with Jesus, nobody has seen anything happen. Nobody. But they leave with something. They leave with something more powerful than a sign, more powerful than a wonder. Now, and I, I think, and we read in the book of Acts how people came to the Lord because of signs and wonders, and I believe that there's people that are drawn by signs and wonders, but there's something in this story that tells us there's something much more powerful that we know, yet sometimes we negate because we like to see the sign. How many of you would love to see somebody get out of a wheelchair right here? Man, that... that how many of you like to, you know, you hear the stories and that whole wall is full of like canes and crutches and hearing aids and all kinds of stuff. That, people are like, man, that would be revival. But in this story, nobody sees a sign, nobody sees a wonder, yet they leave with something much greater. He gives them his word. Now his word isn't as cool because nothing has happened. There, there's, there's, no, there's no boy that gets up off his bed and there's no lame man running and leaping and praising God. There's none of that stuff happening. But Jesus says, I'm going to give you something better than a sign, better than a wonder. I'm going to speak my word. A miracle is a supernatural breakthrough of the natural. Okay? It's a heal, it, when someone shouldn't be healed and something supernatural happens and the natural laws do not take place, something supernatural happens. But let me say this, the natural will take over again. It's just a breakthrough. Do you know that Lazarus did die? He's not still alive. He was raised from the dead, but he still died. Do you know this boy? I'm, I'm just guessing, but there's a good possibility he got sick again at some point in his life. Every person that Jesus healed of sickness doesn't mean that they never had a sickness again. How many of you guys provided for you before? How many of you have needed provision again? The natural breaks back in. The supernatural is the breaking through and it causes a space there in the natural, but the natural always comes back in. <laughs> That's why a sign and a wonder, although it is supernatural, although it is miraculous, is not something that I can base anything on because the natural will always crowd out the supernatural at some point. It will always come back in. And you know what will happen when the natural comes back in? I'll, my faith will begin to drop again. It will begin to drop. When, when someone gets healed, but then for the next three years nobody gets healed, you know what happens? My faith starts to drop. When God provides once, but he never provides again, and the creditors start calling, what happens? My faith starts dropping. But scripture tells us, thy word is forever settled. You see, while the miracle, I, want, I said at the start, I want to see more miracles. But while I want to see that, I can't ever lose sight of the fact that greater than any miracle, greater than any sign is His Word because it is settled, it remains true, it's something I can hold on to, it's something that will never fail, that cannot be shaken. And, and let me just, we're human, we find it easier to trust the sign. 
We find it easier to see a sign happen and then trust it. Why? Because our senses have responded to it. Our eyes have seen it. Something I can see. But let me just remind you that his word is more sure than anything that I can receive. So here's the challenge that we're faced with. I come in needing a miracle. I come in, I've made the trip from Cana. Just getting here on Sunday morning was a 20-mile uphill trip. And I've come staggering in, sweaty, drenched with sweat. And I've, my kid is about to die 20 miles back there. And I don't know what else to do. I've tried everything. But then I come to church and I see no sign or wonder. Can I leave, though? The challenge to you and I is, can I leave without the sign and wonder? But can I leave with the word? Can God speak something to me? And even though I don't see anything happen, even though there's Jesus, Jesus isn't going to come with me, even though none of that happens, can I leave content knowing that I've received something more powerful than any sign, something more wondrous than any sign I've left with His Word? Something happens to this guy. Something happens to him. We find at the end of this, it says, and himself believed in his whole house. In both miracles in Cana, people believed in Jesus afterwards. At the wedding, it was the disciples. After the healing, it was the official and his family. Although that's speaking more of a salvation, they believed in Jesus Christ, but there was a faith in the moment that this guy had as well. We see this is just as part of the story, but I believe that there's really almost a parallel story that's taking place here. There's two narratives being told. You see, this guy, something happened to him. Something happened. It's Jesus, when this guy comes to him, this man comes with a need. A very blatant, apparent need. His son's dying. There's nothing more... In this guy's mind, there is nothing more important in his world. Nothing. You can ask me about anything, and I'll say the most important thing right now is my son is dying. And yet it seems there the, there's this, there's this uh, other narrative being told that only Jesus is aware of. You see, because Jesus doesn't address the son, he doesn't address the healing first, but Jesus addresses the guy's faith first. Jesus decides, he sees imperfect faith, and he decides to strengthen it by testing it. He tested it by not going. He tested it by not showing. He tested the man's faith by saying, believe my word. We think that to strengthen our faith, this is how I would think Jesus should strengthen my faith. I come to Jesus and I say, my son's dying. I've made this trip here. Would you come back to my house? And Jesus, to strengthen my faith, even if he sees my faith's imperfect, he would go with me to my house. He would heal my son. And then when my son's up and healed and running around, he would say to me, now, next time this happens, just believe that my word's enough. But if you would, Jesus throws him in at the deep end. He doesn't build his faith in increments he says, you know what? No, right now, in the middle of your worst moment, I'm going to test your faith. That's tough. He moves past what might have been the expected step and moves to something else. 
Imagine the ruler's thoughts as he comes, hurried. He's hurried all the way here. He's probably sweaty and tired, and he falls at Jesus' feet. And he asks Jesus to heal. He thinks he's done everything that he can do. Perhaps he feels like he's earned it. And Jesus sends forth a rebuke for all of his effort. All you want's a sign and a wonder. I wonder if the guy's thinking, no, I want my son healed. Just imagine what's going through his mind. And Jesus is in no hurry. He's in no hurry. He's, he's, he's not, come on, let's go. We got to get there. He's just about dead. How, much, how long has he been? No, he, he's not hurried by anything. You know why? He's omnipotent. Whether he had to heal the boy or whether he had to raise him from the dead, it makes no difference to his power. He doesn't have to work himself up more for one than the other. It's all the same. But let me just remind you that Jesus may decide to deal with the deeper issue before he approaches your request. You see, the man's faith was of bigger eternal consequence than the healing of his son. Now, in the man's mind, there was nothing bigger in his life at that moment. But Jesus has another narrative going. And he sees the guy's faith and realizes something bigger needs to happen in this guy's life. It's not that Jesus doesn't care about your need. I don't want, I don't want to make this that Jesus is, is an uncompassionate, no, he just has his own agenda and your feelings are just thrown by the wayside. No. He cares about more than what you think your need is. In fact, he cares more than you do. It's amazing what happens to this guy. Hebrews chapter 11 tells us, we know this verse about faith. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. My faith is the evidence of the miracle that is not yet accomplished. He wanted to produce something in this man that would go beyond just the healing of his son. In the old phrase, he didn't want to just give the guy a fish, he wanted to teach him how to fish. When that man left that day, he had no knowledge that his son was healed. He didn't know his son was better. But he did leave with an increased faith. How do we know that? He, he left with no actual knowledge, but he had an assurance that his son was healed. H how do we know this? Well, it was a 20-mile trip. He comes to Jesus. Jesus has got a crowd around him. It's not in the middle of the night. It's probably sometime during the day. There's probably still light out. People are all around. And this guy may have got up early in the morning. He may have left in the middle of the night, set his alarm for one in the morning to make the 20-mile trip so he could catch Jesus. And Jesus says, go, your son's healed. I don't know what the guy did. But we do know that his servants met him on the way. Now, whether they met him at mile marker 19... Or maybe they met him two miles into his journey. We don't know how far. But we know that the man did not complete the 20 miles before he met his servants. And he says, what time? And they say, yesterday. So it's the next day. So this guy did not leave Jesus and head straight home. I would have. I would have immediately left and say, all right, I'm going to go see if it's happened. We don't know what he did. We don't know if he went to Steak and Shake, Denny's, got a new plan for a cell phone, which that would take most of the night. <laughs> we don't know what he did, but it was the next day. 
Something happened to this guy's faith. Something happened when he trusted the word of God. (laughs) Something happened when he trusted the word of God above a sign. You see, while I can see a sign happen and it gives me strength, it gives me hope, it increases my faith somewhat, it does something in me. This guy had a peace and an assurance beyond any sign or any miracle, so much so that he could wait to get home to see if the miracle had happened. There was a peace and an assurance. You see, I wonder how much of my anxiety has in my life of seeing things happen is tied to a sign and a wonder. I wonder how much of my stress would be decreased if I quit looking for the sign, quit looking for the wonder, and started listening to the Word of God that He's speaking to me. Because contained in that word, I've mentioned it before, if God speaks a word, contained in that word is, is the power to complete that word. It's not separate, it's contained with it. That's why when God said, let there be light, that was the same action as there being light. That's why in this story, Jesus said, your son is healed, and there wasn't. A, it was contained in those words, because it says, at the same hour, at the same hour was the power to heal his son. There's, there, there's power contained in those words. But there's more than just the power to do what Jesus said he would do. There's, a, there's a, an assurance. There's a calmness. There's a faith. There's more power in those words than you can imagine. And while I may want the sign, God can transform my life with his power of his word. We see the way that needs to be made in this story. The boy needs healed. That's what needs to happen. But Jesus is following a different narrative. He's looking at some other way that needs to be made. He's the way maker. And he makes a way for this man's faith to never fail. He's looking at the man's faith. You feel like God isn't moving. Perhaps God's just got a different narrative. Well, he's not coming back to my house. I've prayed. I've, I've made the journey. I've got to quit here. I've made the journey. Perhaps God is simply plotting different points on the map. Ones that matter more than what you would ever realize in your life. You think the only thing that matters is what you're praying about. What you're seeking for. And I'm not saying it's not important. And God did heal the man's son. He did do what the man asked him to do. It wasn't that he thought it was unimportant. But perhaps God sees something more. Perhaps God cares more about this one instance, this one miracle that needs to take place. Perhaps he's looking at my life, my purpose, that for which I was apprehended. And he's plotting a different course. In fact, I would say this, and I'm finishing. The miracle is less of a challenge for him than your salvation and your faith in him. You see, because he can control all the miracle stuff, because he has that power. But he can't make you be saved. He can't make you have faith. He's concerned about those things, because he has partnered with us, and he's allowed us to have our own free will about whether we'll believe or not. I would challenge you in your life for things that you've been praying about, things that you've been seeking God for, miracles that you've been looking for. Perhaps you need to say, Lord, I'm just going to take you at your word. I know they don't seem any closer to you. I know that I don't feel any more healing in my body than I did yesterday. Lord, I know the provision is still needed. But you know what? I got a word from you. 
And I'm going to believe and trust in what you've said. Let's stand this morning. I'm sorry I went a little bit late. Last week we looked at how God cares about the big things, but He cares about the insignificant things in your life as well. And this week I would challenge you that God cares about more in your life than you even care about. And He's looking to build faith in your life. He's looking to give you power. He's looking to do something in you and through you. Let's pray this morning. Lord Jesus, we come before you, thankful to be gathered together. We're thankful for your word. And Lord, I ask you that you would challenge us, God.